Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this second hour of The Lead with breaking news in our 2020 lead. Brand new CNN polling from two key battleground states, Pennsylvania and Florida. Just 13 days out from Election Day and with one final debate tomorrow for candidates to make their closing arguments to the American people. Let's get right to CNN political director David Chalian. David, where do the candidates stand in these two critical states? They are critical to the path to 270, Jake. Uh, And we're seeing a pattern here form. Take a look at the Florida numbers, our brand new CNN poll conducted by SSRS. There's no clear leader. It's a margin of error race. We have Joe Biden at 50 percent, Donald Trump at 46 percent. But that margin of error is indeed plus or minus four points. And there's no clear leader in this big electoral prize. Different story in Pennsylvania. Look at the state of the race in Pennsylvania. Joe Biden has a clear lead. 53% uh, in Pennsylvania among likely voters, 43% for Donald Trump among likely voters in Pennsylvania. And this fits what we've been seeing where Biden has some real strength in that upper Midwest Rust Belt region of the country where the Sun Belt states have been a bit more margin of error races. And David, we know that more than 40 million Americans have already voted this election. What does this poll tell us about early voting in Pennsylvania and in Florida? This is just so fascinating uh, and how different the Biden world is voting versus the Trump world plans to vote. Take a look among those already voted in Florida. Okay, Biden is getting 71 percent of those votes. Trump is getting 27 percent among those who tell us they still plan to vote in Florida. uh, Trump beats Biden among those voters uh, 56 to 40. So you see the huge amount of vote that Joe Biden is banking with those folks that already voted. It's a similar story in Pennsylvania. Among those who have told us they already voted uh, in this poll, uh, 88 percent Biden, 10 percent Trump. Uh, But then you look at that universe that say they still plan to vote either, you know, in the mail or in person on Election Day. And Trump is winning those voters who haven't yet voted 54 percent to 42 percent, Jake. And there is a story here about enthusiasm as well. Uh, We see a slight enthusiasm advantage uh, for Trump here in in the state of Florida among likely voters. 58 percent of Trump voters in this poll say they're extremely enthusiastic about their vote. Forty nine percent of Biden voters uh, say the same in Pennsylvania. It's not quite as big a gap there, but still uh, numerically Trump voters, 61 percent. He has an edge in terms of people who say they're extremely enthusiastic about their vote versus 56 percent of Biden voters who say so in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. All right, David Chalian, and that's another reminder, David, that the election results that we learn on election night uh, might actually uh, favor Donald Trump if you don't count the ballots uh, that have already uh, been sent in, which is why it's important to count all the votes uh, before we declare a winner one way or the other. Let's bring in CNN's Abby Phillip and Nia Malika Henderson into this conversation. We're going to have even more numbers from that poll in a second. Abby, first of all, uh, I mean, generally those polls are good uh, for Joe Biden, but 
pretty significant enthusiasm gap uh, in Florida uh, favoring Trump. Yeah, that is pretty notable, and it, it struck out at me. An enthusiasm gap, it seems, almost in general in some of the other states as well, uh, maybe not as large as in Florida. But um, I think back to uh, some reporting that our colleague Kate Baldwin just did in Michigan, where she was talking to uh, some voters there, uh, some black women voters, who uh, some of whom said, you know, I'm not super jazzed about voting for, for Joe Biden, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think uh, that this is a critically important election, the coronavirus in particular, uh, pushing people to do that. So, you know, this time around, you know, I, I think last last four years ago, last election, the enthusiasm gap was a significant issue and a significant problem. This time around, I think the fundamentals are a little bit different. Uh, I think people are feeling a sense of urgency that perhaps they didn't feel before. I think the coronavirus has made uh, this election much more visceral for many Americans. And while people might not be uh, enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden, the polls also show that they don't dislike him as much as they might have disliked Hillary Clinton four years ago. Right. Four years ago, Trump said, what have you got to lose? Uh, and, and now people know. Nia Malika, Biden holds the lead in both Florida and Pennsylvania among key demographics, women, voters of color, voters age 65 and older. I mean, that's very worrying for the Trump campaign. Especially those seniors numbers. If you look back to 2016, seniors made up about 21% of the electorate in both Florida and Pennsylvania. Trump won seniors in Florida by about 17 points. He won seniors in Pennsylvania by about 10 points. Uh, so this swing has got to be worrisome for the campaign, particularly because it's something you can't fix easily. This is a campaign that's about COVID and it's also about character. And obviously seniors have been uh, hit most of all hardest in many ways uh, by COVID and then character, uh, all of those issues about the president's behavior, uh, you know, his Twitter feed, uh, his comments on race, any number of issues uh, that, that bedevil this president in terms of character. Seniors also care about that. So you've seen the president try to do any number of things. He had those uh, $200 uh, drug prescription cards that he was supposed to send out. It doesn't look like uh, that's going to happen. He'll have this moment uh, at the debate, but it's not clear that you can turn this around, uh, particularly with those seniors. The other groups, it's not really surprising that Biden is leading among women, that he's leading among people of color. It'll be about turnout of those groups. It'll be about margin with those groups. But these seniors' numbers are uh, a real reversal fortune for this president and for Republicans more broadly. And David, Joe Biden's uh, looking to Pennsylvania and the Rust Belt as his, his main a path to victory. And in Pennsylvania, there is this massive divide among white voters when it comes to education level. White voters who have four-year college degrees support Biden uh, over Trump 63 to 35. Those who do not hold college degrees favor Trump by 59 to 35. What do you make of this? Yeah, this is one of the great divides in American politics now. And we saw this starting in the Clinton-Trump race. And we know that white non-college educated vote is Donald Trump's base, especially white non-college educated men. But when you look at that white college educated vote, uh, you know, this is taking what Hillary Clinton was doing and sort of turbocharging it uh, for Joe Biden. And by the way, women, white women with college degrees is part of what is powering that to such a big advantage for Joe Biden. And, uh, and Abby, one demographic uh, where Biden is struggling, uh, or I'm sorry, David, uh, one demographic where, where Biden is struggling uh, is with Latinos in Florida, 
Uh, and this, this poll suggests Biden is underperforming Hillary Clinton's 2016 showing in the state among Latino voters. 52% back Biden, 45% Trump. Clinton won 62% of this group, according to exit polling there. Uh, how big of a problem is that for Biden, or does he make up for that w with all the seniors that he's winning over? You just hit the nail on the head there, Jake. I mean, I do think what he makes up with seniors, with independents, also a group that Donald Trump won in Florida last time around, uh, is is enormous and, and really important to why Joe Biden's at 50 percent and Donald Trump's at 46 percent. But watch that Latino number in Florida specifically, uh, because we know uh, it's not monolithic at all. There are all different slices of the Latino electorate uh, in Florida politics. And yes, he's underperforming where Clinton was, which is something that the Biden campaign is consistently trying to work on. Obviously, that's a small sample. It's got a 10 percent margin of error. So uh, some caution there with that number. But this has been on Joe Biden's to-do list for months now, and he still doesn't seem to be quite at sort of the Clinton levels. And of course, she ended up losing that state anyway, Jay. That's right. And Abby, just last night, President Trump was in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, take a, a listen to uh, uh, an interesting admission from the president. He was uh, at a rally in Erie. Before the plague came in, I had it made. I wasn't coming to Erie. I, I mean, I have to be honest. There's no way I was coming. I didn't have to. I would have called you and said, hey, Erie, you know, if you have a chance, get out. But we had this thing won. And then we got hit with the plague. And I had to go back to work. Hello, Erie. May I please have your vote? Really saying the quiet part out loud there. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, how's that for a pitch to voters? Uh, you know, I really don't want to be here talking to you, but I have right. to because I need you to get out and vote. Um, I don't, you know, the, the president's supporters actually would probably love something like that from him. Uh, the sort of, I guess they would call it self-deprecating humor. But I also think it's kind of not true as well. And we should point out that this really has been a very stable race. Uh, Joe Biden has been, according to the polls, leading President Trump for a long time, uh, pretty consistently, in fact, in many of these states. And so the, the, that trend, perhaps, you could argue, was exacerbated by the virus. But uh, there has been some fundamental weakness for President Trump uh, all along in this race. And, uh, and now, when it's crunch time, that situation is really bad. But, but he may be right in one respect, which is that there are parts of that state that he should have locked down, parts of that state where he should have very large margins. And that's going to be one of the big things that we look for on election night, is in the places where he's supposed to do well, is he doing well enough to overcome Joe Biden's uh, um, strengths in more of the urban areas and the suburban areas around the big cities in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean, the Trump team was worried about Biden from back in 2019 when the president was pressuring Ukraine to give him dirt. I mean, like this says this is not just because of the pandemic. Nia, uh, the Biden campaign has been warning supporters that this race is a lot closer than pollsters say. Uh, and obviously the party's still reeling uh, from their shock uh, of Hillary Clinton losing. The New York Times is reporting um, that some Democrats are beginning to consider that there might be a landslide. I want to understand. I want to underline. I am not saying that. Some Democrats <laughs> are saying that to the New York Times. 
you know, I was talking to a Democrat earlier who was saying the same thing. Uh, maybe there'd be a landslide. She did said she would never want to say that publicly uh, because of where this thing is and because of what happened in 2016. Another Democrat I talked to said she's afraid of the unknowns, right? If you think about 2016, there were all of these things going on, including Russian uh, interference, but also sort of algorithms and Facebook, uh, you know, digital ads in a, a strategy that wasn't necessarily visible to the Clinton campaign. So that's one of the things uh, that she's afraid of, as well as voter suppression. There are obviously efforts, known and unknown, about uh, what the Republicans are trying to do to depress and suppress uh, the vote. So that is also something that's keeping Democrats up at night. So I don't know that many of them are going to be uh, publicly uh, proclaiming that they're expecting a landslide uh, come November. All right, Abby, Niamalika, David, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. When asked what he would do differently in handling the pandemic if he got the chance to do it again, the president said, quote, not much. How is he justifying that incredibly tone-deaf response? That's next. Plus, what a major coronavirus vaccine developer is saying today about the safety of his vaccine after one of its volunteers died. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, quote, not much. President Trump in denial and on the attack in the final stretch of the campaign asked what he would do differently when it comes to his handling of the coronavirus pandemic on Sinclair Television's America This Week. Well, listen to the president's stunning answer. Is there anything that you think you could have done differently if you had a mulligan or a do-over on one aspect of, of the way you handled it? What would it be? Not much. Not much, the president said. Not much. With more than 221,000 Americans dead from coronavirus, more than 8 million infected, tens of millions of Americans facing economic hardship, kids not able to learn in classrooms, President Trump is saying that he would not change much about his handling of the pandemic. A remarkable claim, given that the U.S. has both the highest death rate and the highest infection rates in the world, according to official numbers, and the fact that the virus is right now again on the wrong trajectory. No expression of regret for downplaying the virus in February and March, for not getting an aggressive nationwide testing and contact tracing program up and running, for not setting an example and wearing masks and social distancing. Not much, President Trump said. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, the president spent much of last night's rally going after Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Presidential Debate Commission and journalists and Joe Biden and the governor of Pennsylvania. Less than two weeks until the election, President Trump's closing message to voters has been a series of attacks on the news media and his own health experts. You have to watch what we do to 60 Minutes. You'll get such a kick out. Look at Fauci, where he originally said, don't wear a mask. That's not the argument the president's political advisors were hoping for as he plays defense in key states. Trump is spending every day on the road and now heading for North Carolina after downplaying the pandemic in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's been shut down long enough. Get your governor to open up Pennsylvania. At one point, the president bluntly acknowledged that his chances of being reelected were altered by fallout from the pandemic. You know, before the plague came in, I had it made. I wasn't coming to Erie. I, I mean, I have to be honest. There's no way I was coming. I didn't have to. And then we got hit with the plague, and I had to go back to work. Although coronavirus is surging across the U.S. again, the president has continued to hold large rallies that contradict guidelines from the federal government. 
Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar insists there are no mixed messages. I speak for him and I'm telling you our strategy is reduce cases, reduce hospitalizations, reduce mortality. That is the message of this administration and the strategy of this administration. Trump maintains there is nothing he could have done differently when it comes to his coronavirus response. Not much. Look, it's all over the world. You have a lot of great leaders. There are a lot of smart people. It's all over the world. The president is now threatening to preempt 60 Minutes and release a recording of his interview with them before it airs after he became frustrated with Leslie Stahl's questioning and abruptly ended the interview. He wants to make sure that he gets a fair shake, that there isn't uh, some deceptive editing going on. Trump and his daughter Ivanka will headline a fundraiser in Tennessee tomorrow ahead of the final debate after new filings revealed the extent of the president's money troubles. Trump is badly outmatched by Joe Biden, whose campaign has $177 million on hand, while Trump's only has $63 million. At least one prominent member of the president's party has broken with him ahead of the election. Utah Senator Mitt Romney telling CNN today he didn't vote for President Trump. Now, Jake, ahead of that final presidential debate tomorrow night, we are told the president is not doing formal prep sessions like he did for the last debate. Of course, those were the sessions that were tied to so many of his close advisors getting coronavirus eventually, in addition to that Rose Garden event. And instead, he's doing things like going to North Carolina to hold another rally with supporters, though it's a state that we should know is seeing record numbers of new cases right now. Which won't be helped by a rally with no masks or distancing required. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Right now, former President Barack Obama is in the great city of Philadelphia as part of his campaigning for his former Vice President Joe Biden in the critical battleground of Pennsylvania. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports for us, the Biden campaign is hoping Obama can motivate three key groups of voters as Biden is off the trail working on last-minute debate prep. Hello, Philadelphia! Former President Barack Obama is back on the campaign trail, making his first stop of the 2020 race, where he left off in 2016. Are you fired up? Are you ready to go? But four years ago, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania, which is exactly why Obama is starting his push for Joe Biden in Philadelphia, his first in a series of appearances over the final two weeks. To boost enthusiasm for Biden, Obama is making a direct appeal to younger voters. Your generation can be the one that creates a new normal in America, one that's fair, where the system treats everybody equally and gives everybody opportunity. And he's working to solidify support among black voters in Pennsylvania and other key battlegrounds. It's the biggest test yet of Obama's political clout after coming up short during the last presidential race, despite his aggressive campaigning for Hillary Clinton. I'm betting that the wisdom and decency and generosity of the American people will once again win the day. And that is a bet that I have never, ever lost. This time, Obama has a new argument in his arsenal, the record of Trump's first term, a case he spelled out during his Democratic convention speech, also from here in Philadelphia. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. He's also injecting himself squarely into the fight for Democratic control of the Senate, making personal appeals in new television ads for challengers. From South Carolina... If you want a senator who will fight for criminal justice reform, lower college costs, and make health care affordable, you've got to vote for my friend Jamie Harrison. 
to Georgia. You don't find a lot of people in Washington like Reverend Warnock. And that's exactly why we got to get him there. To Maine. Help elect Sarah Gideon and make sure if Joe Biden wins, he'll have a Senate ready to work with him to move our country forward. And in Michigan for Democratic incumbent Senator Gary Peters. Gary was there every step of the way, helping save the auto industry, protecting the Great Lakes, covering pre-existing conditions. Yet there's little doubt Obama's chief focus is on Trump. And the feeling at the president's campaign rallies is mutual. He campaigned harder than Hillary Clinton did for Hillary. And it just made us stronger. I want him to campaign so much. I want him to campaign, you know, because uh, we're going to do even better. Now, the former president, Jake, is beginning his stop here in Philadelphia right now at a meeting with black leaders at a community center in North Philadelphia. This is one of the specific audiences the former president is trying to reach, black men. They believe that they need to uh, increase their support for the Biden campaign, as well as younger voters and Latino voters. That is exactly why uh, Mr. Obama is out on the campaign trail right now. And, Jake, he'll also be appearing here at a drive-in rally. It's one of the things the Biden campaign has been doing, but certainly different from the last time that uh, the former president appeared on the campaign trail. But he will be making the case for Joe Biden. Now, there's no question this is about Biden versus Trump. But, Jake, it's also one more chance for this country to take a measure of the two men, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. We have some breaking news for you now. The CDC is changing what it considers to be close contact with a coronavirus patient. We'll discuss what that might mean for you with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. That's next. There is not a single state in the United States, not a single one, trending right now in the right direction when it comes to COVID cases. 26 states are reporting a rise in cases over the last week, and yet some officials in the White House are still pushing this herd immunity approach, which could mean theoretically as many as 2 million dead Americans. And as Nick Watt from CNN reports for us now, the president's own Surgeon General is openly calling this a deadly strategy. Normal life, that's all we want. You know what we want? Normal life. Sure, we all want it, but we can't have it. Not yet. Nowhere close. Cue the actual experts. This looks like we're going to have a very difficult fall and winter. We're about a week away from starting to enter a period where we're going to see um, a rapid acceleration in cases. More than 60,000 new cases yesterday, most in three months. Soon it'll be 70,000 cases. But the, obviously the major implication of this dramatic rise in cases will be in two weeks, a dramatic rise in deaths. Yesterday we lost 933 lives to this virus. You'll start to see closer to 2,000 deaths per day. Average new case counts, not a single state is trending in the right direction. Not one. But schools are open many places in Michigan. Infections now reported in 84 of them. Infections among kids jumped 13% in just the first two weeks of this month. Very few serious cases or deaths in those under 18. But those kids live with adults, right? And, and those kids bring that germ back home to adults. In El Paso, Texas, more tests coming back positive now than ever. In California, under new guidance, Disneyland might not reopen for months. Some of us are tired 
given up on masks and distance. For others... Probably given up isn't the right term. Most of them never started. Some due to a wink from the White House. Twitter just took down a Dr. Scott Atlas post undermining masks. He's now the president's closest COVID advisor. Also promotes herd immunity. Let it rip among lower risk demos. We should be fine with letting them get infected, generating immunity on their own. Today, the Surgeon General pushed back hard. This could overwhelm healthcare systems and lead to many complications slash deaths. Take a nice deep breath. A vaccine might bring normal life. Moderna and Pfizer meeting with an FDA advisory committee tomorrow to discuss efficacy, safety, manufacturing, but not to present new data from trials. Not yet. Today in Washington, a march pleading for a vaccine that is safe. And we have just heard that a volunteer has died during the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine trials down in Brazil. Following careful assessment, Oxford University tells us there have been no concerns about safety. We have no further details, but those trials continue. Jake. All right, Nikwa, thank you so much. I, I want to bring in CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, I, I want to start with what President Trump said today uh, when asked if he would, uh, if he could do it all over again, what he would do differently when it comes to handling the coronavirus pandemic. He said not much. What's your response? Uh, it, it's totally absurd, uh, Jake. I mean, to think that the uh, the best that we could do uh, was be the worst in the world. Uh, that, that's basically what he's saying with regard to this coronavirus response, because anyone can look at the right side of the screen. And as they've heard so many times, if they watch your show, we're not even 5% of the world's population and make up uh, you know, nearly 20, 25% of the world's cases. So it's, it's obviously a huge, huge uh, a shortcoming here. I, I think what, what is lost sometimes in all this, Jake, is what does it mean to have done something? Uh, the president often talks about the travel restrictions, but that clearly wasn't enough. Well, I, I want to show you some hyper-local data. We, we were collecting this from Arizona. You remember Arizona uh, going through you know, the spring and just how significant the impact was over there. When they lifted stay-at-home orders, Jake, no surprise, uh, beginning of June, end of May, uh, they had a significant increase in the overall number of cases, 151% increase. But take a look at the second line, Jake. 75% uh, decrease over about three weeks from mask requirements, limiting some of these large public gatherings and certain business closures, which mostly meant bars. Okay, 75%, Jake, that's a hyper-local piece of data. Um, imagine if that had happened around the country. We'd be in a much different position by this point. I mean, that was you know end of July, August sort of time frame. We would have bent the curve and we wouldn't be dealing with the situation that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, and that's just leadership. That's not even the Manhattan Project for testing and contact tracing that, that you and I have been discussing literally since February and March. Uh, Sanjay, the CDC just yeah. redefined what they mean when they say close contact with a COVID patient. Now it's considered high risk if you're exposed to a person for a total of 15 minutes. Before, it was at least 15 minutes of continuous exposure. Um, how big of a deal is this? What does this mean? I think this is a pretty significant deal, uh, Jake. You know, so as you point out, you know, uh, if you're with an infected individual, close contact defined as at least 15 minutes within six feet. 
What they found from a, from a um, person up in Vermont, it was a corrections officer, who over a period of time had these brief interactions, 22 brief interactions around a minute each uh, for a total of 17 minutes total, and uh, none of them would have qualified as a close contact under the previous guidance, but as a result of those brief interactions, that corrections officer contracted COVID, contracted the virus. So it is sort of redefining a little bit of how we look at these contexts. I think it's going to be really important when we think about the types of interactions. You know, we would say, look, if you pass by somebody in the hallway very quickly, that's probably still not considered a close contact. But a quick hello, um, a brief conversation within six feet of someone who's infected may not know that they're infected. Those are also things that this now guidance is saying we have to watch out for. So I think, you know, look, I heard that and I think it's going to change how I even think about these interactions because I was taking some solace in the 10 to 15 minute, I was saying in the back of my mind, of, of uh, close contact. Now, I think, you know, you, you obviously you always got to maintain the distance, got to wear the mask and stuff like that. But think about that duration. Even a couple of minutes now counts. So bad news. The virus is clearly surging. Hospitalization numbers are also going up. Uh, but if you look at this graphic, uh, the hospitalization numbers not as high now as they were in April or July. How do you interpret this data? Well, th this is going to be very interesting to watch. I mean, I think there's a few things that are happening here. One is that there are younger people who are becoming infected. Uh, the numbers continue to go up, but the hospitalizations don't go up at the same rate. That's potentially good. We are also getting better at taking care of these patients. I want to show you, you know, the likelihood of dying if you went to the hospital with COVID at the beginning of this pandemic, about a quarter, 25%. Can you imagine? 25%. If you went to the hospital, you had a one in four chance of dying March, April. By May, June, they're saying closer to 8%. So significant improvements. A lot of that may have been because of, you know, there were people who were less at risk of dying who, who, who were hospitalized, but were more likely to be discharged. You might also be having shorter hospitalizations. People are often being hospitalized for 10, 11 days initially, Jake. Hospitalization duration short, shortened, and that probably brought the numbers down. But Jake, look, it may still go up. Younger people becoming infected, but as they spread this to more vulnerable populations, we may still see, sadly, that surge in deaths. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. Joe Biden just ran an ad during a World Series game, the unbelievable cost of the ad, and a look at the strategy. That's next. In our 2020 lead today, Joe Biden's campaign spent an estimated $4 million to air one ad during last night's World Series. $4 million in an aide tells CNN that they plan to air another one during Game 2 tonight. Joining me now to discuss, former senior advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod. David, I want to start with the strategy behind this World Series ad that ran. Let's play just a part of it. There is so much we can do if we choose to take on problems and not each other and choose a president who brings out our best. Joe Biden doesn't need everyone in this country to always agree. Just to agree, we all love this country. And go from there. So this was an ad guaranteed to be seen by millions during one of the biggest sporting events of the year. Was this the right yeah. message? It's, it's basically Joe Biden's a nice guy. Donald Trump isn't. I mean, is that enough? Well, first of all, let's stipulate that any ad that Sam Elliott narrates, even if he was reading the Greek alphabet, is going to get people's 
attention. I do think, look, this is a closing argument, uh, Jake. And, you know, remember where Biden began the campaign with his ad about Charlottesville and the uh, need to uh, come together and unite as a country. Unity is a very big theme of his campaign. And if you look at the polls that CNN released today, you can see why in Florida he has a 17-point edge on who will unite and not divide the country. In uh, in, uh, Pennsylvania, I think it's uh, 23 points. Uh, And that is a very big advantage in a country that is weary of being divided. It is a contrast that works for him uh, with the president. So, uh, and especially at a time when the president is going out and being more and more uh, divisive. I think it's uh, strategically very sound. A new report from the Wesleyan Media Project finds that nearly 5 million ads have aired this election cycle between presidential, House, Senate races. That's more than double the number of ads in 2012 or 2016. Is there a risk here uh, for people buying these ads uh, of oversaturation? People don't even pay attention anymore. Uh, Well, first of all, what it underscores to me is that I got out of the business too early. (laughs) But uh, leaving that that aside, um, you know, there is uh, some risk of that. But, you know, the thing about... uh, That's interesting to me with this national ad strategy of Biden. One of the reasons he's buying national ads is that the local markets in these battleground states are so saturated that it is less costly to buy national ads uh, than it is to buy uh, local ads market by market. The other thing that it does is he is getting... Uh, for the same price, he is hitting states that are expansion states like Ohio, for example, Iowa. Uh, and uh, that is a that's very effective right now. What they're trying to reach. And this is another reason to buy ball games is they're trying to reach low information voters. They're not trying to reach people who watch State of the Union. Uh, they're trying to they're trying to reach people who aren't paying a lot of attention to this campaign. They're the only people left who really haven't made a, their minds up uh, on this race. So. Uh, the, the slots they choose are, are really important. The Trump campaign uh, rolled out a series of ads last week targeted, it seemed, uh, at senior citizens. According to Axios, uh, the Trump campaign spent eight figures on ads such as this one. Together, we rose to meet the challenge. Protecting our seniors, getting them life-saving drugs in record time, sparing no expense. President Trump tackled the virus head on, as leaders should. We should also know this is also the ad where Dr. Fauci was included, although he says he wants that ad to come down. He was edited and taken out of context. But beyond that, seniors were a reliable voting block for President Trump in 2016. They could be uh, critical to whether or not he's reelected. Um, regardless of the politics, do you think this ad is smart? You know, I think a coronavirus ad is smart. Whether this ad is smart is a different question, because listen to the words. He says he's recovering and so is America. They're watching these ads at the very moment that they turn on the news and see a second surge bearing in on us. Uh, And so there is this disconnect. And this has been the problem for Trump from the beginning. He has tried to spin the virus rather than confront the virus. And uh, and people have recognized that. And so he continues to have uh, poor grades on dealing with the virus. And let me just say one thing about Dr. Fauci uh, and his use of Fauci in the set. It is so telling that he calls Fauci a disaster uh, on his call with his campaign workers and then runs ads with Fauci as a validator uh, because he knows that he's more trusted than Trump on the issue of the coronavirus.
Yeah. David Axelrod, thank you so much. Appreciate your insights as always. Coming up next, a disturbing discovery in court documents from the border. Parents of 545 children separated from them at the border. The parents cannot be found. Sadly, why it may be nearly impossible at this point to track them down. Next. Internationally, the parents of 545 children who were separated at the border by the Trump administration cannot be found. According to a court-ordered joint status report from both the Justice Department and the ACLU, the children, some just babies, were separated from their families between 2017 and 2018 as a way for the Trump administration to deter illegal border crossings. The court documents say that hundreds of their parents may have been deported. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins me now. Priscilla, where have these kids been living since they were separated from their parents? Now, these are children that were released from government custody before June 2018 and now are living in the United States with a sponsor. Now, that can be a relative or someone like a family friend. But I want to underscore here, Jake, that these are families that have been separated for years as a result of a Trump administration policy on the U.S.-Mexico border to separate families. And what we learned in the court filing last night is that, yes, parents of 545 children cannot be located by lawyers who have been appointed by the court to identify them. And hundreds of these parents are also believed to have been deported, making tracking them all that more difficult. Now, we know of these children because of a government watchdog report last year that resulted in the findings of thousands more being believed to be separated than when previously acknowledged. And so now in these court filings, we're seeing those ramifications of this policy still to this day. And lawyers are trying to find these parents, and they're doing so in a myriad of ways, including phone calls, on-the-ground efforts. Um, one of those groups, Justice in Motion, told CNN in a statement that it is an, quote, arduous and time-consuming process on a good day. And now the pandemic has gotten in the way, and that led them to have to halt their searches until resuming them again now. And, and we know the toll that this takes on children. Again, a government watchdog report last year found that children that were separated had, quote, heightened feelings of anxiety and loss. And so the hope here is to find the, these parents and quickly. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. An absolute tragedy. In our 2020 lead, the final presidential debate is tomorrow. President Trump is already slamming it as unfair without any evidence. He's claiming that the Commission on Presidential Debates is shifting the focus away from foreign policy in order to help Joe Biden. Joining us now, former Republican Senator of Missouri, John Danforth, who's been a member on the Commission on Presidential Debates since 1994. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. What's your reaction uh, to the Trump campaign once again assailing the integrity of your bipartisan commission? Well, I don't think it's a matter of the commission so much. I mean, we can certainly take criticism, but the big problem is the effort to undermine the legitimacy of the election. And that really is a serious matter because our, our country depends on people having confidence that elections are fair. And if the strategy of a campaign is to say, look, this hasn't been fair, we've been cheated, we would have won but for cheating by the other side or but for fraud, then we're really heading for problems after the election. So it's a serious matter. It's not just the feelings of people on the commission. You're a Republican senator, uh, a, a 
you know, you, you were the conscience of your party for many years in the Senate. You've been working on presidential debates for nearly three decades. Uh, what do you think of the first debate? Well, I think it, it was not a good opportunity for the American people to be educated about the positions of the two candidates on various issues. And we received, we were really inundated with complaints by uh, watchers of that debate who said this has really been a terrible debate. We haven't been able to hear. The candidates were talking at the same time and uh, we couldn't make out what they were saying. So people felt that they were deprived of what they should have been able to get out of that debate. Do you think muting the candidates for portions of tomorrow night's debate uh, will help? No, it's not really muting. It's um, both back in the summer when the, the conditions of the debate, the rules of the debate, were negotiated with the two parties, it was agreed by everybody that at the beginning of each of the 15-minute segments, each candidate would be able to speak interrupted, un uninterrupted, for a period of two minutes. And that's all we're saying, that for that two-minute period of time, the uh, microphone would be open for the candidate who's speaking, not for the other candidate so that he would have the uninterrupted uh, um, opportunity. And that concept of the uninterrupted two minutes was reiterated by both candidates as recently as within the last week. So it's the same rule, it's just enforcement of that rule. Um, the president, uh, we still don't know when he tested negative, uh, the, you know, before he was diagnosed positive with coronavirus, we don't know if he t was tested negative or was tested at all uh, within 72 hours of the debate, which were the terms and the rules. Are you making sure that President Trump has tested negative and that all the members of his team wear masks during I the debate? Uh, I mean, I, Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I know that where it came up was with regard to the the second debate, which was to be the second debate, the town hall debate. And we took the position then that we were, we could not be certain that one of the candidates wouldn't be infectious. And in order to protect the 60 some odd mem production member, member of the production staff, plus the citizens who would be there, it should be conducted remotely. Uh, and then, of course, that was objected to, but it was it was a decision made solely on the basis of safety. All right, Senator John Danforth, Republican of Missouri, it's good to see you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on us on, come on, coming on our show today. We appreciate it. And you can join me for the final presidential debate tomorrow night. CNN special coverage begins at seven o'clock. Eastern, and then we'll cover after the debate as well. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 